One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to this week's News Hour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-Jones and I am joined by Elizabeth Davis and Piers Lynch, uh, who have between them concocted yet another tale of what happens when the oil price goes down. Because last week we did Saudi Arabia and this week... Venezuela. And the reason being... Uh, that the the country seems to be in a uh, in a rather sorry state, and you know we've been hearing different correspondents, mostly from Caracas, over the last few months, and the tale is always the same. That I was here three months ago, and the queues for basic goods were bad, but now they're even worse, uh, and there seems to be uh, ramping up of the kind of political and economic crisis there. So we thought it was time to take a look. And political crisis, Elizabeth, because it just seems one of those places that has such sharply divided politics. Yeah. And, and, and that's been the case for, for quite a while. But it does, at least from an outside perspective, look like things are perhaps starting to come to a head. Uh, so we, I think in the second half of the programme, we'll take a look at the possible future outcomes of this, because it certainly looks like Yes, the current situation is not... It can't continue. As not it, as not it that is. we're predicting anything? Or, no. You know, no. Who knows? And But but the point is that you're just saying that... I mean, you showed me a piece, actually, which was from one of the American papers, showing that these newborn infants in a hospital are dying at the most extraordinary rate because of basically there's no power to deal with it, there's no there's a squalor, and nurses can't cope and doctors can't cope. It just sounded terrible. Yeah, I, th- I think the reporter from the New York Times who wrote that piece was saying, you know, it was worse than a lot of hospitals he'd seen in war zones, um, even. So, no, I mean, it, it's a for many people there, it's a really dire situation. Yeah, and another place where, I know, as you said at the beginning, where the price of oil is everything to this economy. So, yeah, cheap prices at the pumps uh, is causing absolute mayhem for so many different countries in the world, and Venezuela perhaps leading the way. Okay, so that's what it's about. Venezuela, one hour on that subject, and uh, here is the programme itself. Welcome to News Hour Extra on the BBC World Service. This is Owen Bennett Jones, and this week it's the country with the largest proven oil reserves in the world, and where low prices are causing real problems. Not Saudi Arabia, Venezuela a land where newborn babies are dying because of power cuts and squalor in the hospitals and people are having to queue for hours every day to buy food, and all amidst deep political divisions. To discuss the issues, I'm joined today by Yolanda Valeri of BBC Mundo, that's the BBC Spanish language service for South America. We've got Moises Naim, who was Venezuela's Minister of Trade and Industry in the early 1990s, as well as the Director of the Central Bank. And he's now in Washington, a Distinguished Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We've got David Schmilder, Senior Fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America. Now, that's a research organisation that is basically concerned with human rights in Latin America. He's also a professor in New Orleans, and he's researched Venezuela for 20 years taught at universities there, and is currently in Caracas. And we've got Barry Cannon of Maynooth University in Ireland. He's joining us from Dublin. So very international panel today from all over the place. And uh, you've studied populism and democratisation in Latin America, Barry Cannon, and you've actually just got a book out on the right wing in Latin America. So looking forward to hearing your views. Let's just all start by listening to Will Grant. He's a BBC correspondent who's in Venezuela now. He was there when Hugo Chavez died 
in 2013. He used to live, actually, in Venezuela for many years too, I think. This is his report. The main opposition leader, Enrique Capril Redonsky, has just taken the stage. And, you know, while this gathering isn't large, I'm not going to suggest it's paralysed Caracas, not by a long shot. It's significant in the sense that despite the fact that they're being told by the government that they can't turn out in front of key electoral institutions, the opposition are ignoring those instructions and trying to mobilise the streets. This has been the worst government that Venezuela has ever had. We can't find the very basic things. We can't find milk, we can't find nappies, anything. Crime and violence is getting worse. Every day, a mother is crying for a child lost to the violence. The Venezuelan government claims they are the subject of an economic war being waged by powers both inside and outside the country. But that explanation didn't wash with many people queuing for basic goods at a supermarket in downtown Caracas. So this is turning into a daily scene in not just Caracas but across Venezuela. I'm looking at a queue that must be at least five, six hundred people long. There are the elderly children in here as well. There's a pregnant woman just there. People holding up umbrellas to protect themselves from the sun. Everybody just queuing for the few basic goods that they've heard should be available in this supermarket. Bread, flour, milk, uh, cooking oil. This is the only way they can get their hands on the subsidised goods which are suddenly so scarce. One woman, Eduijis Marquez, on seeing the microphone made her way over to me with something she wanted to get off her chest. Are you frustrated by all of this? I asked her. No, I'm not frustrated. I'm desperate. The situation here is terrible. It's very difficult. We're suffering in terms of the lack of food, the lack of medicine, crime. The government's lies are too much. I work in a hospital and it can't be possible that they lack medicines, office materials, maintenance supplies, everything. And not just in my hospital, in all hospitals. A motorbike taxi driver took me up to one of Caracas's most notorious neighbourhoods. It is the barrio where Hugo Chavez's mausoleum is located, the violent and sprawling 23 de Enero. If there was one word that you could use to describe this neighbourhood, it would have been Chavista. This is where Hugo Chavez used to come to cast his votes. It's where I used to come regularly to watch him do that and film him surrounded by his most ardent supporters, all of whom live in these little brick and tin shacks that are surrounding the hillside around me. But if he could do no wrong here, the same can't be said for his successor, Nicolas Maduro. In the recent parliamentary elections, the unthinkable happened and the 23 de enero, Chávez's stronghold, was taken by the opposition. While up in the 23 shantytown, I looked up an old contact, Judith Vegas. I last saw Judith three years ago, in the days after Hugo Chávez died of cancer. Back then, her emotion was still raw and her support unwavering. Today, she remains loyal, but only just, and accepts that some form of change is needed. 
Yes, we want change, but not the opposition. What would that change be? Maybe remove all the people around the president who are harming him. Perhaps he too should realise that the vast majority of ordinary people just want to move forward and do a little more to help that. The crowd are calling for a recall referendum, demanding that it take place. The opposition leader, Enrique Capril Herredonsky, has just told them that this is the end of the government's time in office, that soon President Nicolas Maduro will be forced from the presidential palace in his pyjamas. Well, there we are. That report from Will Grant just giving us a flavour of what's going on. And uh, David Schmilder, you're actually in Caracas, so maybe we could start with you and say, is that how you see it? We read all this stuff about the economy. How bad is it? Well, I think the situation is quite bad. I mean, I think that that report was a, was was pretty good. I think actually it's it's gotten much worse in the past month or so. I mean, for a, for the past year uh, year and a half, we've had. Very significant lines for people trying lining up to uh, buy uh, basic goods, and we've had cases of looting. One of the things I hadn't seen until about a month ago is our protests for food. I mean, people who will get together, close off a street, and have banners and posters and demanding food. No, and these are this is usually in the interior of the country or in far-flung barrios where there might just be one supermarket or two supermarkets, and food has not arrived in in a couple of weeks, and they'll be demanding that the government bring food. I mean, it's it's gotten to that point. Add to this, in the past month, we've had rolling blackouts across the country, and there's been a significant deterioration, really, to a situation that has progressively deteriorated over the past three years. The, the term people have, you know, it's desperate. People people uh, are, are quite desperate because they can't get what they need. Food is actually is bad, but I think really the worst problem are medicines. People that have chronic illnesses or have, you know, a, a need that they need medicine can't get them, and, and that, that's a really cruel shortage. Let's just backtrack a bit and, and understand where this, these problems came from. And we, we, we may go further back later on in the programme, but we'll, we'll start with uh, Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution, as he called it. So, Yolanda Valeri, can you talk us through that? Actually, I think it would help to say, who was Simon Bolivar, first of all? And what was this Bolivarian Revolution? Well, Simón Bolívar is the hero, the main hero of the independence of South America, Venezuela and several other countries in South America. He was the leader back in the 19th century. Now, Chávez came into the limelight in 92 when he was the leader of a coup against President Carlos Andrés Pérez back then. And he was saying he wanted to rescue the ideals of Bolívar in terms of being a strong nation, an independent nation, a nation that could stand up against empires. Back then it was the Spanish Empire, but in Chavez's time it was the US and allies. And he wanted to rescue that and get rid, rid the country of what he saw was politicians of the past who only wanted to benefit for themselves. And his Bolivarian revolution was pumping money into poor communities, literacy, vaccinations, this kind of thing. It was so in the beginning... Um, He was lucky enough to enjoy high oil prices during the first years of his mandate and that enabled him to actually take that money and distribute it directly to the poor via what he called the missions. He had a mission for education, a mission for health. He put doctors up in the hills in in these barrios that Will was describing and that's the way he saw redistributing oil wealth. Right, but Barry Cannon, the, the question we now have to ask is how sustainable was that and how dependent 
on high oil prices and now the prices have collapsed. We've just heard what's happening. Well, I mean, it's always been the problem with Venezuela is the fact that it has been dependent on oil. Under Chavez, that dependence did grow, but nonetheless, it's a particular problem to do with oil producing countries, the dependence on oil. And what Chavez tried to do was to redistribute that oil money from the people who controlled it before, which were mostly managers, mostly the middle classes, uh, upper classes, to people in the barrio so that they actually saw something coming from that oil. Two main problems about sustainability in the Bolivarian Revolution. The first, the dependence on oil, and the second, the dependence on the leadership of Chavez, and neither of them are there at the moment, and hence we've got these problems. Let's bring in uh, Moises Naim. You used to be Minister of Trade and Industry. You've seen this close up. You know, is the oil a curse? Of course it is, and we have seen it in Venezuela, as Barry has said it. You know, several times we have gone this, uh, through these cycles, uh, and other countries too. Uh, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia, and Nigeria, and all that. Uh, all oil exporting countries suffer from these booms and busts uh, cycles. But it's wrong to say that this is what's happening in Venezuela only. In other oil exporting country that is suffering from the drop in prices and therefore the drop in revenues, we are seeing what we've seen in Venezuela. When oil prices were at $100 per barrel uh, just a year or so or two ago, there were already major shortages in Venezuela of basic staples. You couldn't find uh, toilet paper. You couldn't find basic necessities. So the shortages in Venezuela precede the drop in oil. I think uh, what's going on there, it's a massive policy catastrophe that is creating a humanitarian disaster that we have not seen the likes in Latin America ever. And and And, the the policy error is what? You know, the level of productive capacity that has been destroyed in Venezuela, both in the public sector, state-owned enterprises like the oil company or the steel companies in the the Guayana Industrial Pole, and the private sector, small and medium enterprises, companies that are just leaving, companies that are going bankrupt by, uh, you know, a whole set of initiatives that essentially aimed at giving away and distributing uh, what was there and also what was not. Not there. The Venezuela was always a big importer of uh, food and other products from, from abroad, be, precisely because of the oil income. And that's the problem now, is that, that those imports can't actually take place now. Food cannot be imported anymore. So I think Venezuela always had a problem of, with productivity. So that's not essentially the problem at the moment. This is David. The, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I think there's actually a pretty important literature questioning the idea that oil uh, is a curse in countries like Venezuela. I think if you look at Venezuela's history in the 20th century, it's basically because of oil that they were able to construct a modern society and a modern democracy. Now, it's really how you how you uh, construct your oil economy. I mean, there's a very predictable set of problems that you get with this kind of mono-export economy. You have this tendency to uh, let your exchange rate inflate, and that really uh, makes the, the productive sector decline. But these are things that are quite well known. And the key is, I think, you know, there's, there's no chance that Venezuela is just going to leave this valuable resource in the ground. They have to come up with a way, figure out a way to actually exploit this resource, but not let it completely distort the economy. I think what the Chavez government did and the Maduro after it is basically they ran into... Uh, 
all of the classic errors of, of oil economy. They let their exchange rate completely uh, inflate. They had a, a, an economy, an economic model that was completely dependent on state-led uh, expenditures. You know, they basically fell to all the basic problems of, of an oil economy. And so all of these problems are true, uh, are typical of oil economies, but it, it's sort of like saying the flooding that happened in New Orleans in August 2005 was because of a big hurricane. Well, sure, it was because of the hurricane, but it was also because of inadequate uh, levees and dikes that had been constructed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. May I reply to yes, yes, both you, points? You, you do that, and then we'll have Yolanda. Yep. First is the notion that Venezuela has, uh, always ha has had a problem with its productive capacity, and that's true, but never to these levels. Uh, uh, we had more companies, we had more production, we have more exports. So yes, Venezuela suffered from uh, what David uh, Schmilde describes, which is uh, an exchange rate that created conditions uh, that were too favorable to the oil industry and therefore hindered the development of other industries. But that doesn't mean that we didn't have them. We did have them and they were destroyed during the 17 years of the Chavez uh, Bolivarian revolution. That's a fact that is indisputable. You look at the numbers, look at what Venezuela was producing in non-oil sectors before and look what it's producing now and it's, uh, it's, it's a fact. The second point, yes, Norway manages uh, the, the oil curse and the United States probably does it too. It's, it's now a big oil producer. But these are countries that had a state before they had an oil boom. They had checks and balances. They have democracies. They had a well-functioning public sector. They have a well-functioning uh, private sector. None of that uh, was there in Venezuela. And all the countries that are oil exporting countries are going through adjustments and cuts uh, and, and, and the need to adjust to lower income. Yep. But in none of them we see the tragedy, the massive humanitarian disaster that is going on in Venezuela. No, I get the point. And, and Yolanda, you had something to say. Yes, I wanted to say that probably there is one missing point in this whole story. If you went back to 2000 and six, seven, and you talk to officials in Venezuela, they will tell you, plain and square, that their plan was to actually dismantle the economic structure in terms of the businessmen because they distrusted them. They thought these people belonged to the past in Venezuela, to that power that was entrenched and wanted to benefit. And the whole plan for them was to actually import everything while they'll dismantle the whole production system and then import while they'll, they manage to take control as, as a state and run the state businesses. That was the whole idea. We dismantle the private enterprises, we'll take it eventually in our hands to produce everything and in the meantime we'll have imports and that's how the situation of depending much more on imports than ever before came about. You're all coming up with other reasons why there are these massive problems in Venezuela. Barry Cannon, uh, having heard those reasons, are you convinced by any of them? The big problem in Venezuela was about uh, redistribution of the oil wealth. It was about inequality and the deep inequalities that existed before 1998, before Chavez was um, elected to power. So how can you have a situation where you have oil in state hands and redress those uh, problems of uh, social inequality without large state expenditure. You, the state has to spend in order to re redress that. And, you know, Mo Moises uh, mentioned uh, Norway. 
Well, the other thing that Norway has, apart from a big state, is a really generous social welfare system. So are we going to see a situation whereby there's going to be a big social welfare system created in Venezuela? Chavez did manage to do that, not to the extent of Norway, but did do it to a certain extent. Will the opposition do that is my question, because Moyes has also mentioned that other oil producing countries have gone through cutbacks, they've gone through, in inverted commas, adjustments. Who exactly is going to, uh, are those adjustments going to affect if the opposition gets into power? That's my question, because before, the difference now is that everybody's been touched by these shortages, whereas if we were in a fully market economy, it would only be the poor who would be affected by these shortages because they wouldn't be able to buy the goods. We're going to get some views from people out and about, as it were, in Venezuela to get a sense of how people are thinking. We asked BBC Mundo to ask their audience across Venezuela, the whole country, the question, if there's one thing the government could change that would help improve your life, what would it be? And this is these are the replies we got. Jessica Isabela López. Primero que nada, el gobierno. Luego es más que necesario... First of all, the government. It is necessary for a social, economic and especially political change. The damage that has been caused by socialism during all these years has been of unseen magnitudes. Diego Alonso. Quiero comer tres veces al día. I want to eat three times a day. Judith González Montero. I would like that the media to stop lying and manipulating with false news about Venezuela. Has the government made mistakes? Yes, it has. But much worse is the behavior of the opposition, accompanied by the governments of the EOS, Colombia, Spain, and many others allied of the global economic powers, determined to get their hands on our wealth. Juan Castro. El principal problema en Venezuela no son los políticos presos ni la economía. El principal problema... The main problem in Venezuela is not the political prisoners or the economy. The main problem is the crime, which see us lose many valuable lives every day. Well, there we are, some different voices from across Venezuela gathered by uh, our colleagues at BBC Mundo. Can I, David Schmilder, just ask you a question about the... You know, we've heard these various explanations as to why these problems that those people were talking about exist. The president, Nicolas Maduro's explanation, is not only falling oil price, but also this, foreign conspiracy and Western plots. Now, when he talks about that, what, what is he referring to? What's the substance there? Basically, what Maduro has been talking about for the three years that he has been president is an economic war that uh, uh, entrepreneurs and capitalists withhold uh, products from the market. They do things to artificially induce inflation. Of course, there have been cases in the past in, in, in Chile. In fact, in Venezuela, there was, there was a, a general strike in 2002, 2003. These things can happen, but they usually happen before an electoral event and for a short period of time, not for three years. I think this, that the idea of economic war is, is absolutely ludicrous in the current context. If you just look at the numbers, you look at the fact that the economy has shrunk each of the last two, three years. At the same time, the monetary supply has increased by 60%. Of course, you're going to have inflation. There's no other mathematically possible result. You really don't need anything, any other explanation, any kind of conspiracy theory to understand what's going on in Venezuela. Is there anyone who thinks there's any any credence in this idea that, that, that the West, basically the United States, is undermining Venezuela and that's the problem? You know, uh, the, the United States has consistently supported the opposition and been consistently against Venezuelan government, even during the good times. Even when the Venezuelan government, they managed to double state spend on healthcare and education. They cut poverty and unemployment by half. It became the most equitable country in Latin America. Even when the Venezuelan government was doing those, 
and the economy was growing quite a lot, even then the uh, United States contested and opposed the Venezuelan government. The private sector in Venezuela has always been very against the Venezuelan government at all times. And we saw, for example, back in 2002, along with the coup, the situation where there basically was a management lockout, uh, which was then called a strike at the time. So I'm not saying that that is the cause, but I'm saying that there is possibilities that the basically the capitalist economy has decided to go basically go on strike. Okay, let, let's bring in uh, Moises Naim on that because there was a phase. What 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 uh, Barry Cannon is saying is there was a phase when the, the oil revenues were there. Some serious redistribution was being done by Chavez, and yet the U.S. opposition at that time did seem almost ideological. Is that is that a fair comment? No, what the opposition, and I don't think there is such a thing as the opposition in Venezuela. There, there, there are, there's a widespread uh, segment of society that uh, opposed and didn't like uh, the approaches of Hugo Chavez. But, you know, what we're talking about now, a country where babies that under one month old that die in public hospitals is 100 times higher than it was uh, a while ago. A survey says uh, 86% of Venezuelans say that uh, they buy less uh, or much less food than they used to. Only 54% of Venezuelans today uh, report that they can eat three times a day. Again, and I can go on and on, this is the country no, no, with the highest inflation. I mean, that's why we're talking about it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There are massive, massive problems in Venezuela for, for, for many, many people. Tell you what, we'll, we'll pick this up after uh, a short break now. Just to remind you, if you want to contact us, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet us at bbcnhextra. And it's all there on the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. You're listening to NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones. Well, a Venezuelan upbeat beat to get us underway in this second half. It's a Coca-Cola ad and we play it because things are so dislocated in the Venezuelan economy right now that Coca-Cola has stopped production because they can't get hold of enough sugar. Well, our panel today, we've got Yolanda Valeri of BBC Mundo. We've got Moses Naim, who was Venezuela's Minister of Trade and Industry. We've got David Schmilder of Tulane University in New Orleans. And we've got Barry Cannon of Maynooth University in Ireland. And we're just going to have some tape now of Nicolas Maduro speaking last week, echoing some of the rhetoric Chavez used to use just been discussing this kind of thing, raising the possibility, he says, of a U.S. invasion of Venezuela. I believe we are more prepared than we have ever been for an invasion, and we are ready to see it off. Latin America and the rest of the world would never allow it to happen. But let us not let down our guard. Every day we are ready. And really, uh, talking about the military role there in, in resisting what you know if, uh, what he's suggesting could be an invasion, and to get some idea of how members of the army might be uh, viewing all of this, we can hear now from a retired general. It is uh, Ruben Medina speaking to us earlier from Venezuela. We have to differentiate armed forces as a whole, which are loyal to the constitutions, military values, and principles, from the military clique in power represented by the Ministry of Defense, who is the only military voice that can be heard. Moreover, 
we can refer to the results of public opinion polls, which have always been a reflection of the opinion within the institution. The military and their families are suffering the same difficulties as the rest of the population. Anything is possible amid this chaos, including a coup, which in my view would be undesirable. However, the government permanently insists on being threatened by a coup, which on the other hand can only be promoted and performed by the forces they say to have under control. Both civilians and military in Venezuela are desperate to reach a way out of the gravest crisis throughout its history. A massive social outburst is most likely in Venezuela. However, this danger can be diffused only by letting people to express themselves through the ballot boxes in a referendum. Uh, a referendum, and we will be talking about that. It's a very live issue in Venezuela, but we just heard there a retired general talking about possibility of massive social upheavals, even using the word coup. There have been coups before. In fact, I think, Yolanda Valeri, someone told me that when you started your journalistic career, that was covering a coup in Venezuela? It was pretty much. I just started as a journalist back in 92. And on the second coup, the, the, the one that took place in November, yes, I had to go on the streets. I just couldn't help myself. I was 19. It was impossible. My mother couldn't keep me indoors for right. that one. <laughs> and that was an unsuccessful coup? It was. Uh, the whole situation lasted for two or three days. It was unsuccessful, yes. But w- when you see the army now, how powerful is it? What are its views? What is coming from the military? For me, it's one of those unknown quantities, really, because the same situation of fragmentation that Dr. Naim was describing for the opposition applies for the government and it applies for the army as well. It's very difficult to have an idea of whatever is going on behind doors, because if you look at the, the, at the statements by the leader of the army, he, of course, says that he supports the president and he supports the constitution. But whatever groups, whatever different forces are moving behind the scenes, it's a very very difficult thing to assess. And uh, David Schmilder, can you help us with the relationship between the army and the president? Because he has, I mean, I think I'm right in saying he's lavished the army with money, hasn't he? Well, yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's interesting that Maduro, compared to Chavez, has really coddled the military much more. And that's precisely because he, he feels uh, less secure about their support. Chavez was a military man. And I think if you t- count on his support, it basically has given them, you know, they have a television station, they have a bank, they have uh, control over large uh, parts of the importation of, of foodstuffs. You know, they have all kinds of goodies uh, that they've gotten from this government. I mean, that said, you know, I think it's it's very unclear really right now, uh, the, the military. Last week, we had declarations by a retired general named Cleaver Alcala, who criticized Maduro and said the referendum should happen and that he would vote against Maduro. That's not actually that notable. That's happened before from retired generals. What is notable is the absolute silence from the defense minister and from the high command. Usually, this would be immediately denounced and he would be described as a traitor. But that didn't really happen. And so, you know, I think there's a big question mark there uh, about how uh, consistent the military support is. Moises Naim, have you got a view on the, the, the state of military opinion? I agree with my colleagues that it's a very opaque and, and hard to decipher. But I think that something that uh, about which there is quite a consensus is that there is a, a lot of corruption in the army. There is a lot, you know, there is a part of the army that is deeply involved with narco trafficking. Uh, many of the top uh, uh, brass uh, have been identified uh, by the Department of Justice of the United States and, and other law enforcement organizations as being the kingpins uh, of a very large uh, drug trafficking operation. 
Let's move this on to the referendum. We heard it mentioned by the retired general there. Someone else just mentioned it. There is a campaign on to have a referendum to try and change the president. So, first of all, I'd just like to understand the rules about this because it's all to do with getting signatures and it's very contentious. So, so Yolanda Valeri, can you tell us what's happened, where this campaign to get a referendum has got to? It's incredibly complicated. The thing is, the Constitution says that whoever wants to promote a referendum like this needs to gather some signatures, a particular percentage of the electorate, which the opposition has already done. But now when you have them, the Electoral Council needs to check every single one of these signatures. And that entails, for one, every person who signed needs to go back to the Electoral Council and say, yes, that's my signature. And then the Electoral Council needs to check the fingerprints and they need to check the signatures, and that whole process, it's really unclear how long it's going to take. Well, yes, I mean, if it was 50 signatures, it would take a week. How many signatures are we talking about? The opposition said they gather in excess of 2 million signatures. (laughs) Right, and David Schmilder, there's the signature issue. There's also a timing issue relating to this referendum. Talk us through that. Yes, I think uh, that's the really complicated issue because there's a a series of of requirements that have to be fulfilled, and, and they're very complex. In fact, there are some journalists that just specialize in trying to decipher these rules. The last analysis I saw said that if everything went correctly, this referendum could happen in December. However, the, the important point is that if it doesn't happen before January 10, then there's no presidential election. It would just be the vice president that takes over uh, command. And that would really be a very small prize for the opposition. So that's what's really happening. There's a lot of people in the government and the military that, that would like to see Maduro no longer in the presidency. But they would prefer that to happen after January 10 because they don't want to see the opposition in power. And so I think that's the game right now. Incredibly, there are some in the opposition also who would prefer that uh, simply because they don't really think that taking over Venezuela the last two years of this term and having to pay the debt in in April that looks like they're not going to have enough money to pay for it, you know, I think it's going to be really difficult. And so it's difficult. It's difficult to imagine that it's going to happen this year. I see. Moises Naim, what is your attitude to to the idea of having a referendum, you know, you could argue it's just destabilizing and that you should let governments finish their terms. But the problem is that the situation now is untenable. Uh, this is a government that has shown no ideas. One of the surprising, very baffling situations is that in front, uh, face with everything we have described about what's going on in Venezuela, the only reply, the only reaction that the government has is to say that they are about to be invaded by the United States and that this is all uh, a conspiracy. So, you know, a, a referendum can create uh, some political uh, dynamic that will be healthier than we have now, which is all bottled up. Uh, We have political prisoners. There are leaders that are in in jail. You know, it is a very, very truncated political system at this point. And I want to just point out that uh, on this signature thing, it's, uh, again, a very evident uh, uh, example of how the National Electoral Council, which is is supposed to be an impartial arbiter, is, in fact, just an appendix of the government. They are coming up with all kinds of tricks and, and obstacles, and and some of them are quite incredible, uh, the sort of difficulties that they are creating to stop formalising the process with the signatures. Barry Cannon. 
First of all, I just want to say about the recall referendum, this was something that was brought in with the 1999 Constitution by President Chavez. So, you know, you've got to remember that President Chavez always was uh, accused of being an authoritarian dictator. Most people probably think he is an authoritarian dictator. But in actual fact, you know, there was 16 out of 17 elections between 1998 and 2012, which was won by Chavez, often with large margins. And the possibility of a recall referendum was put into the Constitution as well. There's an important element of democracy there, which has often been denied by detractors of the government. Uh, obviously, the, ter- the tide has been turning against them inter- electorally for quite some time now, ever since the opposition decided, decided to concentrate on the electoral route after 2006. And with the big win in the uh, legislative elections there last December, with the opposition getting two-thirds of the uh, of a majority in the National Assembly, obviously it's deeply worrying for the government uh, to have a recall referendum. You're, you're sort of saying there that if there were a referendum, you do believe that uh, the president would probably lose it? I would say there's a very strong possibility at the moment, yeah. David Schmilder, you want to say something? You know, I don't think a referendum should be seen as destabilizing. It's something that uh, Chavismo created in 1999. It was it's an idea of of allowing the citizenry to be more participatory in in democracy. And so, I don't think it's destabilizing at all. I think it's actually uh, something that's meant to be an escape valve for precisely this kind of situation when when people uh, no longer support uh, a politician that they elected. I've got a question for Moises Naim now, and then I think. Uh... Barry Cannon, who's, who's studied these issues throughout Latin America, you could comment on it. It is this, Moises Naim, what would the opposition do? You know, it, it, it's, it's been having a pop at Chavez and Maduro for you know, years and years and years now. But, and obviously, there is a very difficult situation. But is there a realistic opposition plan? I don't think so. Uh, and again, I, uh, it's not what, you know, it's not what the opposition would do. It's what any reasonable government that wants to solve the situation has to do. There is a, a whole slew of distortions in the economy, uh, and we see the consequences. Uh, uh, there's also a very important need uh, to reconcile. The reconciliation has to be part of, the com- of any conversations. One of the things that President Chavez did and Maduro has continued to do is to treat anyone that uh, disagrees with them as a mortal enemy. Yeah, yeah but to, to be fair, I am going to press you on, on what would you, you know, what would the opposition do? Because, you know, we, we, we've described well, the situation, we've tried to explain can, the situation. I can tell you, the first thing you need to do is to reconcile, try to create a government of national unity that includes uh, everyone and that creates uh, energy and, and a political base to, to, to deal with the situation. The second thing is deal with the security uh, situation. You know, this is a country on, that uh, goes on lockdown after after six o'clock, in which everybody runs to their homes uh, because it's very dangerous to be in the streets, you cannot run a nation, you cannot run a society or an economy with that kind of security situation. You have to bring crime down, uh, and you have to deal with the economy. You have to deal with exchange rate. There, you know, you cannot have an exchange rate that is a thousand percent distorted. Uh, you have to create more uh, incentives for people to invest and bring back uh, the the productive capacity that has been lost. Uh, you have to create a better managed and less corrupt oil industry. The list of things that need to be done is not that difficult. Uh, it, it requires uh, uh, the decision and the, and the will to do it. Barry Cannon, unity, security, exchange rate, foreign investment, oil industry reform, all sounds quite sensible. Well, I mean, I spent almost a year 
going around Latin America. I went to Argentina, to Chile, to Colombia and Venezuela, talking to people on the right or the liberal uh, end of the spectrum, people in think tanks, people in universities and private universities, people in political parties and right-wing political parties. And basically all of them said the same, which was basically neoliberal policies, the implementation of neoliberal policies. We're talking about cutbacks. We're talking about people being thrown out of their jobs. We're talking about the working classes, working class people being thrown back into poverty again. And you only have to look at the government of Macri and also the new, uh, some would say, Golpista government of Temer in Brazil to see what's going to happen. Macri, he got into power. Macri in Argentina. Mauricio Macri in Argentina, exactly. He got into power. He immediately threw out about 2,000 people out of, uh, out of the public service. All of this by decree, by the way. He uh, cut all state subsidies for electricity, for foodstuffs. He uh, cut back on state expenditure, got lots of bankers into the government to run the government and so on and so forth. So we're seeing a, a policy of neoliberalism, a policy whereby there will be stabilisation, but will be stabilisation at the cost of the poorer sections of society. And that's the problem. And when oh, I went to Venezuela, yeah. that's exactly what people said they were going to do. Indeed, sometimes it was even more ultra than what Macri planned to do. But do you think there's an alternative, actually? I mean, if these oil revenues are down, you know, the, the country is possibly going to default. I mean, it's, you know, it is quite serious. Is there, a, is there a, another way of doing it? Look, Owen, I'm not an economist. Yeah. I can't talk about that, yeah. But what I will say to you is that, you know, there are other options for the government, like, for example, going back more to the grassroots of the party, actually talking to people in the barrios, talking to people in the, the community councils and so on and in the comunas and getting them to give them a more protagonistic role, which was one of the things which was promised by the Bolivarian Revolution at the end. And going back to that woman that was interviewed by Will in uh, 23 de Enero, no? Uh, Julia, I think her, her name was, said, no queremos oposición, we do not want the oposición. Opposition, and with good reason, okay, because let, let, they know they'll suffer. Moises Naim, you, you ran a central bank, the central bank of Venezuela. See, uh, I, I, I have to, to smile when I hear uh, these kinds of things, because, uh, you know, uh, talking to the grassroots is not an economic policy. Talking to the grassroots is not going to bring medicines back to the people that need it. Again, uh, th there are some very basic fundamental economic decisions that any responsible government has to make. And labeling, uh, you know, at, at this point, I don't know what neoliberal means except that it's a, you know, it's a bad thing. But the fact of the matter is that there are some very basic things. There, are some, there is a, an equivalent to the law of gravity in economics. You know, we, we all would like to fly and not to be subjected to the law of gravity, but unfortunately we cannot fly. And the same happens with the economy. Uh, there are some certain basic rules that cannot be broken. And in Venezuela, they were broken for a long time and were funded with oil money and a huge indebtedness. The country is now more indebted than ever before in its history. Uh, this is Barry Cannon again in Dublin. What's wrong with talking to the grassroots? Uh, people, ordinary people have good ideas about how to run an economy as well. It's not just economists who've gone to, to great universities or whatever. And also, really, Moises, what you're saying is basically another version of TINA, which is basically there is no alternative. This has to be done or nothing. But that basically just ruins the dreams of many people to have a different economy, which can actually work for everyone and where everyone will have access to medicines and everyone will have access to food rather than those that simply can afford it. Yolanda Valeri, can I just pick up on, on the first suggestion made by Moises Naim a few minutes ago that uh, yeah, the first thing to do is get political unity. And it just occurs to me when, we, when we're hearing it now actually the divisions are so deep and the ideological gap is so wide is that possible 
I see it as something that is really hard just because it's not only the division between the Chavistas and the non-Chavistas, it's the division within the Chavistas and it's the division within the non-Chavistas that you need to sort. That's what I think an articulation of society at the moment is really hard because people cannot just come to agreements to do very basic stuff. Even to, for this referendum, when you were mentioning that there was this possibility of the referendum being in December or in January, there was a point when people were saying the opposition and the government were in agreement as to actually delay the referendum until January. And then the people who were supposedly having these talks turn out they do not represent the whole of either side. So that is not the case. So how do you articulate a, a country which is divided in such a small scale? It's something that is really hard to just to happen. I, I feel that if there is something that is uniting people at the moment, you see that in the queues for food, because people will say, you know, regardless of whether you support Chavez or Maduro or not, you still have to queue up for food. And people will complain in this. And it's only in hardship that people are sort of feeling united. I, I guess they could be united about wanting change. I mean, because, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But what after, you know, what after this, you know, that's like the me- main question and nobody seems to have an answer. And I think that is a massive challenge. I have no idea how that can be articulated. David Schmilder. Yes, uh, I wanted to just say I, I agree with Moises that, uh, that indeed I don't think what has to be done, done with this economy is rocket science. I think, um, you know, uh, just getting a hold of the exchange rate and the different price distortions would have a huge impact. However, I do, I, I also agree with, with Barry that I think, you know, talking to the grassroots, that's not a good way to make economic policy, but I think it's really an essential aspect of democracy. Not talking to the grassroots is not democratic politics. And I think this is exactly what has happened over the past 17 years. I think the opposition has given sort of a lesson of how not to confront a challenge like Hugo Chavez, no, a populist that's responding to globalization and inequality that basically denied uh, uh, Chavismo as a legitimate government and have failed to really engage the population. The opposition prefers to talk to each other. They prefer to talk to journalists. They don't go out and do the footwork and explain to people, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you all as we wrap this up, where Venezuela is going to be in 10 years' time. And I, I realise there are so many uncertainties that that is quite a difficult uh, question to put to you. But nonetheless, it's, it's, you know, th- th- there is so much going on in the country. One wonders just where it's leading. So can I start with you, Moises Naim? In a decade, where will Venezuela be? I have no idea, and I, I think it's a futile exercise. We need to understand how to get out of this mess, and how do we get out of this mess, in what conditions. Uh, initial conditions uh, will determine where we end up, but at this point, the emergency is to try to get uh, to the core uh, of the problems and solve them. And what I said about uh, the, the talking to the grassroots, remember, I said that the first requirement to get anything done in Venezuela is try to get a government of national unity that includes everyone. And that requires a lot of democracy, that requires a lot of inclusion, which is something that President Chavez talked about but didn't do. President Chavez has a long history of being exclusionary and repressive and putting people in jail, people that disagree with him. So I am all for uh, talking to the grassroots, uh, but at the same time, let's not be confused about what's needed. And and David Schmielder, can I ask you the same question, futile though it may be, and and could you take in this issue of default? I know you have have views on that and the situation of the accounts is pretty desperate. So can you just give us your response? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, 
you know, the short term, it does not look good, the short term and medium term. I think it, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to understand how Venezuela is going to pay, is, is not going to default. Unfortunately, Venezuela is a country that can't really default. It's not like Argentina or Brazil that could continually default and sort of rely on their own resources. Venezuela, you know, has assets overseas. It sends, you know, ships filled with oil worth tens of millions of dollars. It, it needs other countries to pay for its oil. It just can't default. It would, it would totally bring the economy to a screeching halt. It's not clear that it's actually going to be able to make its payments, though. And so I think, you know, the, the next uh, year or two looks really grim. I mean, in the longer term, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic. If you think, if you think about, uh, you know, Venezuela has a democratic tradition. It has an enviable resource uh, context. I personally don't think oil is a, is a curse. I think it needs, needs to be managed correctly. And I think, you know, it has a population that's educated. It has an enviable location. And so I think, um, you know, I, I think Venezuela has a future. Of course, of course, this is all complete speculation. We have no idea really what's going to happen. It is indeed. Yes, it is speculation. But, 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 but Barry Cannon, you stress some of the positive things that you've seen over the last decade. Uh, uh, what, what is your view? I mean, do you think those those gains, as you see them, are now in jeopardy. I do, yeah, and certainly looking at uh, other right-wing governments getting into power, as I said, in Argentina and in Brazil now, you can see that there's definitely a sort of restoration project going on, a restoration of neoliberalism. And by neoliberalism, I mean market-favouring measures which prioritise the market over the social. Um, So uh, I would be worried about that, and certainly the people that I spoke to within the MUD uh, even those who are in the more kind of moderate scale, that was their aim to make uh, Venezuela a much more market economy, which would include either the privatization of Pedavesa, the great milch cow of, uh, of Venezuela, or at the very least, it would include the marketization of Venezuela along the lines of, say, Pemex in Mexico. So I would be very worried that, uh, and I definitely agree with Moises, uh, the poor are probably going through hell. I'm sure everybody's going through hell at the moment in Venezuela. Uh, but uh, I would be very worried about any of those gains or rather that idea of trying to defeat inequality and try and spread in, trying to spread the gains to everyone, which will involve distributive policies led by the state, that that may be forgotten in the rush to try and restore things to what they were before. And Yolanda Valeri, finally, uh, I know as a BBC correspondent, you have to remain neutral and it's not easy predicting 10 years ahead in Venezuela and remaining neutral. But nonetheless, can, can, you, can you look forward for us and tell us what you see? I don't know. I'll say I like to talk about the people because what worries me the most, and I'm going to get personal here, what pains me as a Venezuelan is the level of how people are broken morally. I mean, I mean you know, family members, friends, the way they are just in desperation and just so morally broken. And my my main question is, how is that going to be recovered? After going through a process where a country which was more or less, you know, I'm not going to say that everybody was happy and next to each other and there were no difference and anything like that, but it was a country where more or less people could live next to each other. And after the whole process that the country has been through, the whole division, the whole hate, the whole corruption, all of those elements that have been sort of expanded, if, if, you, if you may, if they were not there, let's say they were there, but they were expanded and deepened. I wonder how you reconstruct that and how you build a society that is broken inside. And that was by me. I, so I don't know. I think I'm not alone in being a bit pessimistic, to be honest. 
as in in the long term, I don't see this getting much better, regardless of whether this referendum goes ahead or there is an election and the government changes. Because whatever happens happens at the top is no guarantee that it's going to have a reflection at the bottom. Yolanda Valeri, thank you very much. And thank you to Moises Naim as well and to David Schmilder and to Barry Cannon. And if you'd like to listen to the programme again or listen to any other one from the archive, go to bbcworldservice.com forward slash newshour extra. Just put BBC Newshour Extra into your search engine. It will take you to the page. And there's the whole back catalogue there. You can get the podcast. That's uh, the BBC Newshour Extra podcast. And that will uh, allow you to listen to uh, what is now a year's worth of programming, one hour, one topic every week. You can write to us. We always write back, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk and tweet at bbcnhextra. But that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to our panel. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.